All right, well, hey, if you have your Bibles, you can grab them. You can turn to Mark chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning, continuing on our series uh, through the Gospel of Mark. So years ago, Melissa and I, my wife, uh, we'd become close friends with a couple from our church. And on the night before we were taking this flight out to Amsterdam, they informed us that we had offended them and that they didn't want to be friends anymore. Um, Again, this is not junior high. We were all grown up. We were adults. Um, And it was hard for a couple of reasons. Um, The first is that they never gave us a clear explanation for how on earth we offended them, which was frustrating. Uh, And secondly, we had a 15-hour flight to process our rejection. Um, It was not a great flight. i got to be honest with you. Um, but that leads us into a little bit of what we're going to be talking about this morning, which is uh, being offended, being rejected, and we're going to read the story of the time where Jesus traveled home uh, to his hometown of Nazareth, and he experienced offense, and he experienced rejection by his community and by his family. And what we're going to learn, very, hopefully very clearly, is that offending God, to offend God, um, is to reject the words of Jesus by our words and by our deeds. And we'll see that it's not something that is light. It's a serious offense. And we're going to see a group of people that did that very thing to Jesus and what was the reaction of Jesus and how that applies and how that informs the ways that we might do that very subtly in our own lives without really realizing it. So uh, before we start, though, I I want us to bow our heads and pray and uh, invite the Holy Spirit uh, to be with our time together. Lord, we do pray that. We pray that you would descend upon us, Holy Spirit. Lord, give us um, clear understanding of your word that we're opening, that we're about to hear read. Lord, we don't want these words to just uh, cycle through uh, one ear and out the other ear. Lord, we want these words to have an impact on our heart for the good of your kingdom, for your glory, and Lord, so that we would by measure know you more greatly, more intimately by the end of this service, Lord. So do that work in us, we pray, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. I'm Ashley Carr, and I'll be reading Mark 6, 1 through 6 this morning. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is the word of the Lord. All right, thanks, Ash. Again, this is going to be one of the shorter sections that we probably go through as we're making our way 
through Mark. So here we see Jesus. He's returning to his hometown. He returns to his hometown of Nazareth. We're not really told why. We're not told why he returns home. But we do see that he rolls up with his entourage to a town, which, by the way, would have had a population of around 500 people, right? So this is not like returning home to New York City. This is like returning home to New Pittsburgh, if you've ever, you know, driven up 250 on your way to, to Worcester, right? That's the kind of metropolis, you know, you know, uh, you know, accept my apologies for those of you who live in New Pittsburgh. I'm not killing New Pittsburgh right now. You know, go New Pittsburgh. But, um, but it would have been more the equivalent of that, Jesus returning home to his small, small town. And the first thing you notice as we look at the text is that the crowds don't follow him there. Um, and that's a kind of a, a habit that we've seen of people that Jesus has touched. They tend to, to follow him in every place and every area and every region that he was going. He acquired kind of a large following, but uh, the crowds don't follow him there, nor does it mention that there's anyone to greet him when he arrives. So these are some unusual things as he enters back into his hometown. Now, uh, Mark, again, it's not giving us the picture of a returning hometown hero. That's not what it's like when Jesus comes back um, he's not greeted by the mayor, right? He's not given a parade in his honor. We're not given that kind of picture as Jesus is returning. He simply arrives with his crew. And the first thing we're told in verse 2 is that he begins to teach in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now, a reasonable thought as we look down at this, as we see Jesus returning home a little bit differently in a little bit of a different position than he was in when he left, a reasonable thought might be, how does he just show up in the synagogue and start teaching? Because one thing we know as we've been looking at, at the, the life and ministry and the story of Jesus was that he was not trained as a rabbi. He didn't receive that kind of training. Uh, when he left town, the people would have remembered him as the guy who honestly, you know, installed their kitchen cabinets, maybe did some masonry work in their backyard because his background, his trade was in carpentry, right? So for him to come back and enter the synagogue would have been an unusual thing uh, for them in their perception of who he was. It would be like, in some ways, if one of you showed up this morning and said, hey, is it cool if I hop up there at some point and, you know, preach a little? The answer would be not cool, not cool. Um, we would have our handlers remove you, and by handlers I mean Casey Bond because he's tall and big. <laughs> so that's just a little bit of a warning there for anybody that ever wants to just hop up just arbitrarily. Thanks, Casey. I didn't didn't check with you on that one, but I'm I'm hinting that way right now, right? But back then, here's what the situation was. Back then, they had a tradition where visiting teachers uh, were allowed to come up and speak to the people on a Sabbath day gathering. So there was a tradition of visiting teachers to come do that. So in actuality, even though that wasn't Jesus' formal vocation, it wouldn't have been out of the ordinary for him to come up and for them to allow him to come up and teach them. Now, the reaction to his teaching, though, when we look at verse 2, it was that they were astonished. It was astonishment, which again is a familiar response. If we look back to chapter 1, verse 21, remember where we looked at uh, Jesus, uh, it, it said they, they were astonished at the authority in which he taught, right? Um, he had an authority that the people had never heard before. And the reason the people would be astonished is because other teachers would come, they would read from the scriptures, but they would... Uh, 
they would communicate in a completely different manner. They would start quoting from, say, popular philosophers, or they would make arguments to prove their points in a style that was a little less authoritative. It was more, hey, here's, here's an opinion, here's an option, take it or leave it. But when Jesus spoke, it was different. He treated Scripture as the final word of authority. He didn't have to qualify it. He gave it the weight that it was due as the Word of God breathed out by the mouth of God to inspire the writers who wrote it. Now, man, I remember... I remember so clearly the first time that I was sort of introduced and heard just this biblically robust, God-glorifying, Christ-centered preaching. I remember the first time that happened. I stepped into a church that actually did that, right? And it was so clear. It was so convicting. It was like, it was like an opening had broken through the dark cave of my mind and all these beams of sunshine and truth were darting through and I was given a glimpse into this brighter world outside that I had kind of seen and I had kind of heard, but not like that. I, I felt like my pastor was just directly speaking to me that morning. In reality... The Holy Spirit was at work. He was using the clear, gospel-rich teaching of my pastor to, for me to behold God's glory for the first time. That's, what's, that's what was happening. And, and really, I remember my wife and I walking away, and we were just astonished. Like, we couldn't stop talking about it. We couldn't stop thinking about it. It also meant, at the same time, that there were now implications to that. There were now implications to the conviction that was being created in our hearts, and we'll get to a little bit more of that later. Um, but what we see in verse 2 is that the old school homies Jesus grew up with, all right, they had a slightly different reaction. They were offended, it says. They became offended. They were offended by this authoritative audacity of Jesus. And their offense, it led them to some aggressive lines of questioning that they leveled at Jesus. They actually questioned his training. They said, where did this man get these things? They questioned his knowledge. They said, what is the wisdom given to him? Like, where did this come from? They questioned his divinity. How are such mighty works, they asked, done by his hands? They questioned his training. They said, is this not the carpenter? Like, isn't this the hammer and nail dude that we grew up with? is what they were asking. They even questioned his family of origin. They said, hey, isn't this the son of Mary and the brother of James and the brother of Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? Like, like we, we, it's, it's, we, we don't forget. We don't forget who this guy is. His family is here. We remember how he grew up. We remember the things he did, the things he said. We know a lot about him because he was part of our community. He was one of our neighbors. What's significant, though, about that last line of questioning in particular is that it points to what many of his local peeps still consider to be his illegitimate birth. And the reason for that is that in that culture, you always identified a person by their father. So really, Jesus would have been uh, identified as Jesus, son of Joseph. Again, we don't see, any, we don't see Joseph in the picture anymore. It could have been that, that he died or he just wasn't mentioned. But a person was usually identified by their father. But here they identify Jesus as being the son of Mary, which would have been a veiled, or maybe not so veiled, way of saying, look at the family heritage of this man. It's not reputable. There was scandal at one point about 
Jesus' legitimacy. So to them, it put questions in their mind of how can this man be trusted or why should we even listen to him? And then in addition to that, carpentry. Carpentry was not a highly valued vocation. Like to me, it's really highly valued because like the only thing I know how to do is like construct toast, right? So like if somebody literally knows how to like work with wood, like I'm just awestruck, right? And I'm probably hiring them a lot. Um, but back then, carpentry was not a highly valued vocation. But Jesus had spent his teens and his 20s learning the family trade because Joseph was a carpenter. And again, he, he'd not been trained by a rabbi. He didn't carry any, any formal credentials unless you, you know, count that whole son of God thing, right? There was nothing formal there. So even though Jesus had re- received some measure of divine authentication from the testimony even of John the Baptist and through the miraculous signs and through the wonders that he had been doing all throughout the region that had given him this massive reputation and following his hometown crew wouldn't receive him with anything other than offense. And maybe you've experienced a version of this in your own family, right? You've, uh, you know, you've left home, you've established a career, maybe you've gotten a degree, you finally, after all these years, developed into the well-adjusted and mature citizen that, that you always thought you could be, um, but when you visit your family, they literally won't let you progress past who you were at like 13 years old, right? No offense to all the 13-year-olds, but they're all hoping you progress, right? Maybe. But that kind of happens sometimes. Like, I, I remember... I remember how incredibly self-righteous I was as a kid. It was, it was horrible. It was horrible. And to my shame, I remember when I was 16 years old, I remember yelling at my older brother who did not know Christ in a fit of rage one night. And I, I remember telling him that he was going to hell. Oh, I, I, like, I still have to sigh when I think of myself saying that to him. And again, you know, I wasn't even a Baptist, you know, at that time. But here I was, coming down on my brother. Um, Man, I did so much damage that night. I did a lot of damage that night that honestly took years, took years to undo between my brother and I. My reputation, though, at that time, it, it had been set, right? It had dried in the concrete in my family. In fact, years later, after I was married, my wife went antique shopping with my sister and they ran across this old pulpit, and my sister said, look, we finally found something to buy Ronnie, you know? I know it was an ironic statement, and no, this is not the pulpit. <laughs> this was not the pulpit. Um, but Jesus' friends and family, they, they refused to accept Jesus for who he was. They chose to be offended by his words and to question the truth and the validity of his miraculous works. And in fact, in verse 4, he quotes this old ancient phrase, if you read verse 4, and he says, uh, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his, uh, in his own household. And then in verse 5, Mark provides something kind of shocking, the reaction. He provides just this unsettling development with the people and with Jesus, which is that Jesus could not do the kinds of miraculous works he'd been doing everywhere else because of the people's unbelief, it says. Now, again, we want to be careful with this. We want to interpret this correctly. Jesus did not somehow lose his divine power in that particular 
uh, moment. It was simply that the Holy Spirit had not softened the hearts of the people to receive what he had for them. So it says he healed only a few sick people, which is an amazing statement really in and of itself when you think that healing a few sick people is made to seem almost underwhelming considering the ministry that Jesus had. And then it says in verse 6 that he marveled at their unbelief. They were astonished on one level at his teaching, but he was astonished at the depth of their callousness towards him. And then in a very sad, sort of anticlimactic ending, Jesus leaves. He leaves them behind to go to other villages who had hearts to receive him. So it's a very sobering story about Jesus returning home, wanting to reach into the community that he was raised in and have that community be so offended that they eventually reject him and let him go and say, we don't want to have anything to do with you. So what I want to do is I want to bring this around a little bit because this is a really unsettling text for us. Again, so if if Jesus is God, it means all his words are true. And if all his words are true, then we are called to believe all his words with the understanding that nothing is of greater importance. The call for Jesus' people in his hometown, it's the same call for us today. So first off, we want to ask the question, what does it mean to be offended by Jesus? Because some of you might say, I'm not offended. I would never react this way to Jesus. Like, I'm telling you, Big R, like I would not react this way. I don't disagree with his words. Okay, but here's the thing. Every time you and I hear God's word, we walk away reacting to it in some way. Like there's no neutrality when it comes to obedience. We're either obeying the words of God. We're either receiving his words as being the written words of God breathed out to us for our good, for God's glory, and then obeying them properly. Or we're not. So there's a little gravity with this. There's no neutrality. I mean, if you go to church, if you study your Bible, you listen to a podcast, you read a book, on Christian living, all good things, you may walk away not disagreeing with the words you read. But the question is, have those words changed your actions? Have they altered? Have they altered the way that you do things? Because if God's word doesn't move us to obedient living, listen, we are in effect not agreeing with God's word. That's what's happening right here. That's the danger in towns where there's a lot of churches, where there's a lot of churches and people have been going to church for a long time and people aren't easily offended by God's word. But if there is not the fruit of obedience when we hear God's word, our life is literally hinging in the balance between heaven or hell and life or death. I know I'm sounding super crazy Baptist right now. But that's really what's hanging in the balance. So we want to be serious about not looking at a story like this and judging the hometown crowd of Jesus and going, yeah, you know, that's, that's nice. I'm glad we're not in those shoes. Because some of us very well may be. My question is this. Are you functionally offended by God's word? Maybe you hear God's word a lot and have moments 
of occasional astonishment. When the Holy Spirit gives you that spark of brightness and clarity. But if someone put a GoPro on your life, would people see that he's actually an offense to you in practice? Because here is the frightening observation. I don't know if you caught this. The hometown crowd were church people. They were in church. They were offended by the words of Jesus in the place that they went allegedly to worship God. There's something sobering about that. So I want to unpack a few things. I want to pack the ways that we are functionally offended. I want to pack, unpack some of the ways that we live out functional unbelief. And then I want to finish with talking about the beauty of belief. All right? So here's just a start. I want to talk about being functionally offended. Because I think these are two ways. There's probably more. But here, here's two ways that we can be functionally offended. Number one, we can be secretly offended. The last thing, in other words, the last thing people would ever suspect of you is that you're a Christian. Like if somebody found out you were a Christian, I'd go, oh my gosh, seriously? Now, let me say this. I'm not talking about those of you who should shut up occasionally, okay? The gospel is an offense. Some of you add to the offense by the way you speak without learning how to rightly mix truth and grace at a level that shows the grace, truth, mercy, and compassion of Christ. Some of you guys need to back it off a little bit. But that's so few of you. That's so few of you. Most of you don't have that problem. What I'm talking about is this. What would somebody know about you after spending any time with you? In other words, what's the most significant thing that identifies you and that you identify with? You know, and it can be a number of different things, right, that, that become defaults for us, like our, our job or our, our family, or maybe it's your favorite football team, which, of course, if you live in Ohio, that's like asking a rabbit if carrots are their favorite vegetable, you know? So I don't even know why I listed that one. Um, but here's my question is, do you, do you, in a sense, do you wear Jesus? Or is he more like an undershirt of your life? Or occasionally when you unbutton the top layer, people get a hint that there's something underneath. And so the question, again, that, that, that kind of tends to rise up is you say, well, does that mean I don't know Jesus if I have a hard time sharing my faith with others? Right? Because that's an important question. Well, no. No, it doesn't necessarily because we know from Peter, we know from Peter that you can blatantly deny Jesus like Peter did on the night before Jesus' death and still be known, still be known by Jesus. The question to ponder today for us is why am I so ashamed? Why am I ashamed? What is at the root of my fear? Why am I so afraid even though God has set me free from all fear? And so some of us are secretly offended because Jesus has become the best kept secret of our life. And in those moments, we need to pray for courage. We need to pray that God would give us courage. So some of us are secretly offended. Secondly, some of us are safely safely offended. You only hang out in places where being a Christian would never cost you, right? All of your environments are just carefully crafted Christian environments. And, and by the way, that's not all bad. This is a pretty carefully crafted Christian environment, but it shouldn't be exclusive. It shouldn't be exclusive to our lives. You should be known in non-church circles. 
You should be willing to risk offense because this is how Jesus lives in you and through you. This is godly risk-taking. And you know what? There's a thrill to it. There's a delight in it. There's a joy in it that the Holy Spirit will produce in your heart through it. So two ways that we can be functionally offended is we can be secretly offended or we can be safely offended. There's probably more. That's what I have for today. So that's the offense that we find ourselves facing as people that claim to follow Christ. Now, I want to spend a minute uh, trying to understand unbelief here. Right? Because we can read things about unbelief and we can misconstrue and we can misinterpret what the Bible means when it's talking about unbelief. So it says Jesus could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief. Now, the question that immediately rises up or that should rise up is this. Does our unbelief somehow have power over God? Like, did their, did their unbelief somehow inhibit Jesus from doing what Jesus wanted to do? Well, again, it doesn't. As we saw clearly last week in the story of Lazarus, when the weak belief and faith of Martha and Mary, Jesus still went ahead and he raised Lazarus despite the fact that their faith was weak. But in this specific context, Jesus performed mighty works as a way to reveal his identity as the Messiah. So, when these people rejected him, there was nothing more he could do in that moment to further authenticate himself as God's son. This was a particular context that we're seeing this in. So at some point, we know, actually, that God saved at least two of Jesus' brothers who were part of this unbelieving group, James and Jude. James is responsible for the book of, writing the book of James at the end of the New Testament. His brother Jude was responsible for writing the book of Jude at the end of the New Testament. But for reasons that were not given here specifically, he had not moved widely. God had not moved via the Holy Spirit widely in the town of Nazareth. And it said because of their unbelief. So let's unpack unbelief here for just a minute by asking this question, what is unbelief? Let's go to Romans chapter 1. Move ahead about four or five books and we get to Romans 1. Here's what the Apostle Paul tells us about what unbelief is gives us a really good definition of unbelief. We're going to pick up in chapter 1, verse 18. And this is what Paul writes. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So what is unbelief? Well, it says it right there. Unbelief, it's a suppression of the truth. It's the result of unrighteousness. It's a willing denial of truth that is clearly given by God to be seen and to be understood. So what is, belief, what is unbelief marked by then? Well, let's look in verse 21. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So unbelief is a suppression of the truth, and what's marked by that is both external and internal actions that flesh out into being dishonoring God with our bodies, being thankless to him and for him, 
and foolish thinking that permeates our minds that leads to our heart and then comes out in our actions. So that's what unbelief is marked by. And then thirdly, what is the result then? What is the result of this unbelief? Well, let's go to verse 24 in Romans 1. He said this, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and served the creator rather the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then verse 26, for this reason it says, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations with those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then 29 says this, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who who practiced them, if I had a mic right now, I would drop it and I'd grab like eight more and drop those. I mean, that's insane, what we just read. I mean, there cannot be any clearer picture of what the fruit of unbelief is and what it can become in a person when it knows no bounds. And really, the result of unbelief is simply this. God leaves people in it. God leaves you in it. He gives you over to it. He actually gives you your desire. Because the result of unbelief in Nazareth was what? What was it? What happened in Nazareth as the result of their unbelief? Jesus removed himself. He left the church people to their unbelief, to their hardness of heart, to their suppression of the truth. They were left in judgment, actually. Well, what is judgment? Well, judgment is God removing his presence, his grace, his mercy. It's this, listen, it's that he allows those who reject him to continue the life of separation that they want, to seek their own desires, to fulfill their own destinies. But you know what the real offense of unbelief is? The real offense of unbelief was not that the people were offended by Jesus, it's Jesus being offended by us. Mark chapter 8, we're going to get to this in a few weeks. Mark chapter 8, 38 says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, it's not past tense, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. But he doesn't leave it there. He doesn't leave it there. In John 5, Jesus also says this, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So in reality, all of us are born offending God because all of us are born in unbelief. But for some, God uses his words to create faith and belief in a person. Now, we have to be careful to 
interpret passages like this correctly because we can incorrectly think that our unbelief has power over God. Again, I want to hit this a little hard. We can think, God has not worked on my behalf because of my unbelief. I'm crushed because I don't think God has worked the way I thought God would work, and I'm afraid because it's due to my unbelief. God has not healed my child. God has not brought peace to my relationship. God has not gotten me out of a mess that I'm in. But what we know is that God calls us to belief. He calls us to belief. But if the strength of our belief was the only power from which God could work, it would mean that we possessed ultimate power over Him. And that is not what we see in Scripture because we possess no power over God and not even close. Now, these people, what they did was they outright rejected Jesus. They didn't believe He was who He said He was. And in the same way, we can be functionally offended by Jesus. We can also have a measure of functional unbelief. So I want to talk about this for a minute, about functional unbelief. We talked about functional offensiveness. But what's functional unbelief? Here's the question that I want to answer that will hopefully bring some clarity to what I'm talking about. Does your life make sense to an unbeliever? Does your life make sense to an unbeliever? Because I'm here to say that it shouldn't in many ways. Your life should not make sense to an unbeliever. Here's a few examples, okay? When an unbeliever looks at your marriage, it should make no sense to them that you stay together with this person when the going gets brutal. That should make no sense to an unbeliever. When an unbeliever looks at the way you spend your money, it should make no sense to them the kinds of things you do and you don't spend your money on. The things that you value, that you open up your checkbook and write, if you're still one of those people that writes checks, if you do teach me because I haven't done that in so long, but that, that should look, that should not make sense to an unbeliever when they see your account balance and where everything's going. Three, when an unbeliever looks at how you parent your children, it should make no sense to them the ways you have chosen to raise your kids. The fact that you don't engage in activities that take them away from gathering with your church family. Oh, buddy boy, Ronnie, you're getting into some dangerous waters now. Well, let me be a little more clear. When an unbeliever looks at you and says, so let me get this straight. You don't do baseball and football and basketball on Sunday mornings because you value being together with the gathered family and that is the value and the principle and the truth and the glory that you're trying to reinstate over and over in the hearts of your kids? Why do you do that? That doesn't make any sense to me because I know my kid's going straight to the NFL, first draft pick. A little sports for you, guys. <laughs> that should make no sense to an unbeliever. When an unbeliever looks at where you move, when they look at you relocating, it should make no sense to them that the first determining factor in choosing a location is where you will worship. When an unbeliever looks at your life, they should see things that don't make sense, that they would never do, that point lovingly and graciously to your love and affection for Jesus first and above all other things. 
So does your life make sense to an unbeliever? Do you live with functional unbelief? Think about that. Pray through that. Ask yourself the hard questions. Here's a couple other things I want to answer as we close. Because we're getting into a lot of things that we could spend days and weeks fleshing out. Obviously, we don't have that kind of time. But here's a couple encouraging things as we close. It's this. If you're afraid after hearing this that you don't believe, maybe you're somebody that says, I'm wrecked because I hear this, and now it's calling to question in my own life fears that I have that maybe I don't believe. Here's a couple things with that. If you're afraid that you don't believe God, that's likely a sign that you desire to believe Him. But maybe you're struggling in your effort. And maybe right now you're going through a time where you're just overwhelmed and there's fear and there's anxiety in your life. It could also be a sign that you fear what God has said about the fate of unbelievers. But all of that comes from a concern of the heart that means you don't want to displease God. What you're experiencing in these particular situations is what we would call doubt. Because unbelief, we saw what that's characterized by. It's characterized by dishonoring God. It's characterized by foolish thinking. It's characterized by thanklessness. But remember, we covered this story a couple of weeks ago. Maybe it was last week when we looked into Mark chapter 9 and we read about the man who had a child that was inflicted with an unclean spirit. And he went to Jesus. And what was his line? He said, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. He went to Jesus. He was acknowledging that Jesus had the power to heal his child. But he was struggling with belief. But even in our struggle to belief, if we are consistently going back to Jesus, that's a form of our faith growing and expanding because we're going to the right source, aren't we? Maybe you're afraid that you have doubts. So maybe it's not unbelief, or maybe after explaining this, you realize that you have doubts. Well, we need to understand something about doubts. We need to understand that doubts are not the enemy of belief. God used doubts, we remember, in the life of Peter to show him grace and to strengthen his belief. Man, that night before Jesus' death, I mean, not a shining moment for our boy Pete. I mean, that was insane. His behavior was just out of control. That, that wasn't just, that, that didn't even look like functional unbelief. That was just like straight up unbelief, right? But what happens when Jesus sees him in the passageway, catches Peter's eye, and he looks at him, and he smiles. His eyes communicated love and acceptance and hope. And what happened to Peter was it caused him to be crushed. It caused him remorse inside. That was somebody that was experiencing severe doubts in his life, but he still believed. Every person who has ever been changed by the power of God's grace, every Christian is a person who will be given grace when they find themselves in that place, when they find themselves on the battleground of doubt, which again is different than unbelief. Because here's the thing, a righteous person, one who has been saved by putting their trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross, a righteous person cannot suppress the truth. They can wander from it. They can ignore it for a season, but they can't forcibly put an end to it, which is how we would define the word suppress. Somebody who is able to suppress the truth has likely never been saved by the truth. 
So, man, there's kind of a grave warning here for us, isn't there? But let's not miss what else we see, which I think is so hopeful for us. Because in a town that rejected him, it says Jesus still heals a few. We tend to glaze over that. But that shows us something about the heart and the patience and the compassion of Jesus Christ, is that he always seeks those he believes, who believe. He always ministers to those who seek him in their weakness. Imagine, listen, imagine how hard it must have been for those people Jesus healed to live in a place so offended by him. He still showed them grace. He still waited. In John chapter 1, verse 11, the apostle says this, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That is the beauty of belief. Not perfect belief, but grace-infused belief. Jesus, rejected by all, does the mightiest work of all by dying for us so that we might not die in unbelief. And we can reject or we can receive Jesus. Rejection leads to judgment. But believing in his name means he will walk with us through the remainder of our lives until the day we see him face to face in glory forever. Let's pray. God, we come before you knowing that you are all sovereign, you are all holy, you are all righteous, but you are also a God of steadfast love and compassion and mercy. Lord, you know our struggles. You know our doubts. You know our bouts with unbelief. You look at us, you see deeply into the recesses of our hearts. There's nothing there that you don't know that you don't see. Lord, we battle with these things the way that the hometown crowd of Jesus battled with these things. But Lord, I pray that we wouldn't live functionally offended or unbelieving lives as your church. But Lord, that you would strengthen us, that you would give us courage to remember the hope that we have that lies within us. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us as people living in a community that need to see the hope of the risen Christ. Lord, don't let our fear inhibit the opportunities that you give us to extend the grace of Christ to those around us. But we also know that when we fail to do that, Lord, that doesn't inhibit you. That also doesn't cast you away from us. But Lord, you understand our weaknesses. You understand our inabilities. You understand our sin. Lord, we want to relish this grace, this grace upon grace that you give us. But Lord, we also want to be a people of conviction. And we want to be a people who live out our conviction. We don't want to be people that just go to church 
We want to be the church that goes out and reflects the beautiful, glorious name of Christ, the power of the gospel for salvation to all who might believe. Thanks for using us. You don't need us, but you use us in that. Lord, help us to be faithful to that call as we rest in your grace during those times we doubt it and we fail it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Together we said, amen.